Oh, let's try that again. Good morning, Faith Fellowship. All right, that's better. Welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. I want to remind you, if you missed a message, any message of the year, you can always catch up. You can listen again online by going to FFC Sermon or sermons.org, where you can download, listen via podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the Live tab, and watch a previously recorded message on either Facebook or YouTube. As we walk through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in the life of Christ, His lifetime. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that this is one part, albeit the most important part, perhaps you might argue, of God's amazing plan for you and me. The entire Bible is one connected story. It is the story of God setting right what we messed up. And that story began long before the world was even made. Before time itself began, God had a plan. God knew what we would do and choose, and He had a plan to make it right. The decision, of course, is ours now to either reject or receive that plan. And that story weaves its way through God's Word, the Bible, in a connected fashion like no other literary work has ever done. Let me show you what I mean. This is one of the most fascinating, amazing images I think that I have ever seen hands down. Professor Jordan Peterson recently and brilliantly described the Bible as the first hyperlinked text. That is the first text that completely references itself throughout the entirety of its structure in a vast series of internal connections. It's kind of like Wikipedia on steroids, where all the articles have hyperlinks to other articles and and create a vast uh, array of knowledge. The Bible is hyperlinked in the same way. The bar graph that runs along the bottom represents all the chapters in the Bible, starting with Genesis 1 on the left and finishing with Revelation 22 on the far right. Books alternate in color between light and dark gray, with the first book of the Old Testament and the New Testament being in white. The length of each bar represents the number of verses in that chapter. For instance, the longest bar is the longest chapter in the Bible, there and about in the middle of the screen, Psalm 119. Each of the 63,779 cross-references found in the Bible are depicted by a single arc. The color corresponds to the distance between the two chapters, creating this sort of rainbow-like effect. Now, did you catch that? 63,779 cross-references. 63,779 across 66 different books, written by 35-plus authors in multiple languages, written over a time span of 1,500-plus years. Who could weave such a thing together through time and history but God Himself? Paul tells us in Scripture that the Scriptures themselves are God-breathed. He says in his letter to Timothy, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is mind-boggling to me to consider the depth 
of God's Word that we have in our hands. So I don't want you to lose sight of its amazing connectivity and its completeness as we focus in each week in kind of a laser fashion on one, just one small portion of Scripture, and this year on the events that happened in Christ's life. Well, let's pray and we'll pick this up on the other side. Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence. We thank you that you have spoken throughout history, that you have always been there, interjecting yourself time and time again, saying, I'm still here, that you are reaching out to us, that you have a plan, and that that plan will ultimately succeed. Father, we thank you that you know what you are doing. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us today as we open up your word. We thank you for the calling that you have in each of our lives. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn our attention to the life of Jesus, you might ask, why did Jesus spend most of his time in Galilee? Well, to understand that, you have to go through these connections, through these hyperlinks, back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah foretold where Jesus would minister. Nevertheless, he says, that time of darkness and despair shall not go on forever. Though soon the land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be under God's contempt and judgment, yet in the future these very lands, Galilee and the northern Transjordan, where lies the road to the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness shall see a great light, a light that will shine on all those who live in the land of the shadow of death. Notice Isaiah says the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now Zebulon and Naphtali were two of the ten tribes in the nation of Israel after the kingdom was split. But they were relatively insignificant tribes. Only Issachar is mentioned less often. They were rarely mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament and were never spoken of as having great significance or an important role. That is until God mentions them here in Isaiah 9. In fact, these are the only tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel that God included in connection with the coming Messiah at all. Now I wonder why that is. Well, let's think about where Jesus lived for a minute. Of course, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Remember, he traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem, right? And that's south of Jerusalem. All right. Having been warned by an angel, he fled with his parents to Egypt. All right, there we go. We all got that one right. You guys are paying attention to your Christmas story where they remained until King Herod died. Now, with that threat to Jesus removed, the family returned to their home, but not to their home in Bethlehem. No, they returned to their home that they had left years before that in Nazareth. And Nazareth was in the region of Galilee. So you're right, Galilee. It was in the region of Galilee. This is why we include maps, included maps in this year's notebook, so that you can follow along with where all of these events are happening in Jesus' life. So you can see where they are taking place. Guess which tribes once inhabited the land of Galilee? That's right, Zebulon and Naphtali. Matthew tells us that early in his ministry, Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, lake, more like an, almost an ocean practically, a pretty big sea, in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. 
land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isn't that interesting? Galilee was the area once inhabited by Zebulon and Naphtali. When Jesus began his ministry, he resided at Capernaum in Galilee. It was in Galilee that Jesus performed his first miracle. It was in Galilee that he selected most of his 12 disciples. And it was in Galilee that he spent most of his time preaching and teaching and performing various healings and miracles. Jesus literally brought the light of his ministry to the people who lived in the land that once had been Zebulon and Naphtali. So, Faith Fellowship, hold on to your seats. We're about to journey from Faith Fellowship Church in Nottingham, Maryland, and we are going to go halfway around the world. We are going to go to the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where we pick up in our series this morning in the little town. There it is, a small little town, even still today, with a pier and a dock going out into the Sea of Galilee. And our text this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why do your teachers eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning we'll be looking at the call of Matthew by Jesus to be one of his followers. Now let me add a little visualization to the story before we dive in, and, and nothing does it better than this scene from episode 7 of season 1 of The Chosen. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to you. What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go.
Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? Grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. All right, you're the host. Yes, indeed. Get used to different. I think I'm going to have to do some serious binge watching to catch up on this series. It looks really good. Uh, and I think they're into, I don't know, season two or three. I haven't, I haven't seen many of them yet myself. I want to reread our verses from this morning from the Living Bible. As Jesus was going down to the road, down the road, he saw a tax collector, Matthew, sitting at a tax collection booth. Come and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. And Matthew jumped up and went along with him. Later, as Jesus and his disciples were eating dinner at Matthew's house, there were many notorious swindlers there as guests. The Pharisees were indignant. Why does your teacher associate with men like that? Because people who are well don't need a doctor. It's the sick people who do, was Jesus' reply. Then he added, now go away and learn the meaning of this verse of Scripture. It isn't your sacrifices and your gifts I want. I want you to be merciful. For I have come to urge sinners, not self-righteous, back to God. To what Scripture is Jesus referring Jesus is making one of those cross-reference links, and he's doing it back to the Old Testament prophet Hosea, Hosea 6.6, where he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The Good News translation puts it this way, I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burnt offerings to me. Now, Matthew's gospel is one of what are called the synoptic gospels, one of the, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was kind of out there on his own taking a different approach to the gospel story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar and often have the same events throughout, with obviously a slightly different perspective and view. For instance, Mark also records the calling of Matthew in chapter 2. But there's a tension in Matthew's gospel that isn't there in Mark and Luke's gospel. Matthew's version repeatedly conveys a tension between who is in and who is out. Matthew is the only one who tells the story of the Gentile wise men from the east who follow a star to Bethlehem. Matthew is the only one who describes the kingdom of heaven as a field sown with good seed and later by an enemy with weeds and who tells us that both of these must grow up and be sorted out on the day of judgment. 
when the weeds will be separated and thrown into the fire. Matthew's Jesus is the only one who tells the parable of a net of fish, some clean and some unclean, that have to be separated before they can be eaten. Matthew is the only one who shares the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That was Bill's message last week, in which even those who came at the last hour got paid as much as those who worked all day. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. It's God's limitless grace to all. In other words, in ways that aren't clear in the other gospel accounts, Matthew shows his readers that there's always an underlying question about what sort of person gets salvation and what sort of person gets left out. I wonder whether Matthew's own calling in Matthew 9 had something to do with that. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, as a tax collector, Matthew was working for the enemy of God. He was responsible for getting money from his fellow Jews and giving it to the Roman Empire. And his own salary came from commission, which means that he was motivated to squeeze every penny he could possibly could out of people. And he probably sat there right at the end of that pier to make sure that he got all the traffic coming in off the Sea of Galilee. Tax collectors in those days were seen as traitors for two reasons. Firstly, they were hated because of the oppressors, the Romans, whom they collected taxes for. Probably kind of like going back uh, into World War II and, and dealing with the sympathizers from France and Holland in the Second World War. Secondly, they generally had become very rich by charging massive tax rates, far in excess what Rome required. And they enforced payment by using the Roman army. It's no accident in the gospel accounts that tax collector is associated with sinner as though they were interchangeable words. You saw it in Peter's reaction in the video. Whoa, 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 Jesus, what are you doing? Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes, Jesus replies. I don't get it, Peter said. You didn't get it when I called you either, Peter. This is different. I'm not a tax collector. Jesus grins and says, get used to different. I get where Peter might have been coming from. If you and I are going to change the world or, or bring world peace, maybe we're in the Miss Universe pageant. That seems to be the answer, right? Bring world peace. Or we're going to do some fantastic event. Who would you choose? You'd pick the best and brightest, right? Not Jesus. He seems to revel in the worst and the weakest. My strength is made perfect in weakness, he says in 2 Corinthians. Who remembers playing handball or any sort of organized sport back in grade school, right? Teams had to be picked, didn't they? Captains were named, usually the, the best kids, athletic kids in your class, and then teams were picked. I always felt bad for the kids who got left to the very end. They were the worst players. They were the social outcasts, not in the cool group. Until it got down to the last kid. All right, I guess I'm stuck with Stinky Pete. Kids can be mean, right? Can't they? We used to take two boys to school in a carpool in the morning when our children were younger. One morning, these two boys were talking to each other about another student whose name they couldn't remember. They couldn't remember her name, but they got there by description. Don't you know who I'm talking about? You know, that pin-headed, snaggletooth, pencil-neck girl? And the other boy went, oh, yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about. She'd have been first 
on Jesus' team. Jesus didn't pick the Pharisees or the rabbis or the so-called leaders or the well-to-do. He picked those who needed mercy and grace. That's the life that Matthew lived, rejected by his people. Or did he reject his people? Rejected by his faith? Or did he reject his faith? Rejected by his God? Or did he reject his God? And then Jesus comes along and says, Hey, tax collector, follow me. We see in the verses that follow that Jesus was keeping company with other tax collectors and sinners as well, and that this choice got under the skin of the religious elites. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, they asked him. Jesus replied directly to them, saying, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's the teaching that the Pharisees need to hear. They need to learn what it means for God, who desires mercy, not sacrifice, to draw sinners to himself and not righteous people. But how does the truth of God's choice of sinners like Matthew, the tax collector, shape him and those like him? We see explicitly what it does to the religious elite. They get offended. But what does it do to those who are called? I wonder which is harder to believe, that Jesus would eat with sinners like that or that Jesus would eat with a sinner like me? Would he eat with me? Or anyone else whom Jesus calls? Who had the harder time grasping the reality of the call? The Pharisees or Matthew? Which is easier, to mock Jesus for hanging out with sinners or to get up when he calls and trust that even you have a place at his table? The gospel account spends a lot of time describing the elite's reaction to Jesus, but we never get that first-hand account of what it felt like to be called from a place of sin and rejection into a place of forgiveness and reconciliation, unless we count Matthew. There is a tension in our lives between who is in and who is out. We feel it. Even those of us have, who have a so-called lived good lives, we go to church, we pay our taxes, we kiss our mothers, we say our prayers, even we wonder whether Jesus could really be calling us sometimes. Who, who me? As he points the finger, me? Why, why are you choosing me? I want you to notice something about this story. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed. In Mark's version, it reads this way. It says that once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, as I envision this scene, the one thing that sticks out to me as being really odd is this. Jesus is mobbed by a crowd that is showing great interest in him. But he seems to approach the one man in town who seems to show no interest in him at all. And he calls him. Here's what I see. God's sovereign grace is able to reach through the crowd to find his true followers. Even a tax collector, a sinner like Matthew, even you and even me. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's what you need to ask yourself. 
Where are you in this story? Are you just one of the crowd being swept along for the ride? Or has Jesus called you? Matthew, follow me. Seth, follow me. Frank, follow me. Christy, follow me. Theron, follow me. Helen, maybe I should say mom. Mom, follow me. <laughs> Joanna, follow me. I'm not sure that one will ever happen. Follow me, no. Follow Jesus. Are you listening? Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Or are you going to arrive at heaven's gate having never really heard God's call? To you. Maybe you've done good things, or so you think, in his name, but you missed the most important part, which was knowing him, not going through the rituals, only to hear these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burnt offerings to me. Over and over, Matthew brings us to this point of tension. So who belongs the dogs who eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. Throughout his account, Matthew invites us to ask those sort of questions. Who belongs? Do I? Because he felt that tension himself. He discovered what it meant for a sinner to be welcomed at God's table, and he invites us to do the same. But beware, the call of Jesus costs something. It might be your so-called friends. It might be family. It may be money, esteem, or position. But the reward, I can tell you, is far greater. And then the job falls to us to be God's hands and feet and to show mercy and grace to those he puts in our path. We, too, need to learn the meaning of these words. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Worship team, you can make your way back up. From 1987 to 1990, the Ministry of Television Evangelists, properly referred to in the press as televangelists in the USA, was brought into disrepute by the revelation of a string of frauds, mismanagement of funds, and infidelities. The first scandal of the break, and probably the most infamous, was that of Jim and, and Tammy Faye Baker and the PTL ministry, PTL standing for Praise the Lord followed by the fall of Jimmy Swaggart. The press quickly renamed PTL ministry as Pass the Loot Ministry. In 1986, PTL's income was $129 million and included Heritage USA, a 2,300-acre religious theme park, a hotel, and a shopping mall in North Carolina, and its own TV stations. Jim Baker had an affair with the church secretary, Jessica Hahn, in 1980 and resigned in 1987. When it came to light that he had paid her about $265,000 in blackmail money over the affair. After his resignation, Baker asked Jerry Falwell to take over PTL. When Falwell began examining the accounts, he discovered that the Bakers had been taking large amounts of money 
from the ministry fund, including hundreds of thousands of dollars in salaries for Baker and his wife, insurance, property, and other fees. The U.S. Revenue Service, the tax collectors, investigated the account, and they discovered that the couple had diverted $4.8 million for personal use. Part of the sum came from fraudulent $1,000 partnerships, which secured each partner three days free stay, free lodging at the hotel in Heritage USA. However, Baker had taken so many of these partnerships that he was no way he would ever be able to fulfill all of those requests, kind of like a Ponzi scheme. Indeed, the fraud was on such a scale that it was estimated that about 1,500 people a month were being defrauded of their free time share. Jim Baker was indicted for fraud in 1988 and sentenced to 45 years in prison and fined $500,000. When the scandal broke, Baker's Christian friends quickly deserted him. He became an outcast in the Christian world. And when he was sentenced, his wife Tammy Faye left him and then divorced him. Six months into his sentence, Baker was surprised one afternoon when the prison governor called him into his office. Baker had a visitor, none other than Billy Graham. When Graham came in, Baker asked him why he had come to visit, because he knew that any association with him would tarnish Graham's reputation. Graham replied that Baker was his friend in good and in bad times. And now when things were bad, he would stand by his side. And Billy Graham was true to his word. Baker's sentence was eventually reduced on appeal to 10 years. And when he came out of prison on on parole, he had nowhere to stay. And so the Grahams invited him to stay with them. On the Sunday following Baker's release, Ruth Graham took him to church with her. Disregarding what people would think about her, she stood up in church and she introduced Jim Baker to the congregation as her friend, Jim Baker. The Grahams showed a real Christ-like love to Jim Baker, very much on par with the love that Jesus showed to a tax collector like Matthew, who he called into his inner circle of friends that day as he passed by Matthew's tax booth in Capernaum. Jesus was prepared to call Matthew his friend. Jesus stands knocking and waiting to call you his friend this morning. And it doesn't matter what you've done or for how long you've done it. Jesus has the same invitation for you as he did for Matthew. Follow me. Will you this morning? We'll end this morning with a verse and a song. Isaiah 64, 4 says this. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God beside you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Decide to follow him today. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you and not against you.